The Map Room, a business owner's guide to the art of harnessing choice. The podcast that explores the world of business through the decisions owners face and the choices they create. Join the conversation with Paul Barnes and Stuart Brown as they walk through some of the toughest decisions you have to make while leading a business and how understanding the choices can be used to guide strategy and optimize outcomes. Brought to you by Map and a host of special guests. Hello, and thank you for choosing to spend the next hour with us once more in the Map Room, where, as always, we hope that today's guest is going to leave you with enough ideas and actions that you can take away and put into your business and hopefully get better outcomes for you and your team. Now, I always like to start these by putting the um, episode and maybe then the guest into some kind of context. I was fascinated by quite a lot of the feedback we got around um, episode seven this year. Uh, the tables were turned and the irreplaceable Mr. Barnes uh, was sat asking me questions. And we spoke about um, the journey that I'd been on through various um incarnations of businesses and some we'd exited some we'd grown some we'd shrunk and I always said that I think the biggest differentiator for me between success or otherwise has always been the culture and I'm a big believer in the culture is what you have and what you get whether you design it or not so today we wanted to really drill down in more into culture and therefore today's guest I'm delighted to say is Leanne Elliott and Leanne is a certified business psychologist and a leadership coach with over 15 years experience in building workplace cultures. She's the co-founder of people and culture consultancy Oblong HQ and she's also the co-host with her partner of a very successful uh, podcast which I hopefully will discuss later which is Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture, hence the subject matter expert for today. So Leanne, welcome to the Map Room. Delighted to see you. I know we've done lots of things remotely over the over the time. It's great to meet you in the flesh and welcome to the Map Room. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And you're right, isn't it such a joy to be in the same room as people, being able to without any kind of restrictions. It's yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're more than welcome. It is it is a big thing and and we do these things, but I just think it always works better face to face. And 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 so thank you for taking the time. For people who don't know, Leanne's actually journeyed from Croatia to get here today. So I always say that coming on the M62 is a battle of the half. But <laughs> planes, trains, and automobiles has got you the expert in the room today. So so thank you for that. There is a phrase or a quote that I have often used. It's not mine. Um, I don't know who said it, but I repeat it as often as I can. It says, culture is what happens around here when no one else is looking. We all have, um, in our own businesses and in lots of clients we work with, we've seen the values wall. We've seen the six-foot letters written on the wall and we've seen the fancy policy documents and all those things. But in my experience, they just fade away if that strategy that policy whatever we describe it as is not with it built within the behavior of the people each and every day and so that's where the best quote i believe the best definition of culture and the impact on your business is culture what happens around here when no one else is looking so if we accept that as a key premise for today's discussion and therefore for me culture is all about people i'd like to start in the area of recruitment and the reason I say that is every year we speak to our clients on a regular basis, but every year we have a review and we talk to them and say, what are your three biggest concerns for future or your um, uh, action points that you need to look at? And I would say that over 100 agencies now, the t- 
somewhere in that top three is recruitment. It might not always be one. It's either recruitment because they want to grow or recruitment because they are growing or recruitment because they're coming out of COVID, lots of things. But recruitment is one of the big, big issues. So probably an unfair place to start, Leanne, but I'm going to throw the $50 million question at you that says, how do you find, engage and then empower great people? It is it is a big question, um, but one that that Al and I at Oblong are, are committed to answering with our with our clients, and it and it really does come down to what what we've defined as three different stages within our, our cultural roadmap, which is recruitment number one, engagement, and management. Um, but I think just to maybe touch on on recruitment first, and maybe you, I I love your quote, culture is what happens around here when no one else is looking, and it's very similar to my favourite quote, which is you know culture is defined by the worst behaviours tolerated. Mm. Like it doesn't matter how great things are in the organisation, if you've got that little pocket of toxicity, that's what defines your culture. So I think when it comes to recruitment, it's a similar thing. I think it was actually Jeff Bezos who said something about brand being your true brand is how people talk about it when you're not in the room, which is similar to to the quote you've got there. And I think when we think about that in terms of recruitment and employer brand now being such a, a hot topic, it really is that power shift that I think is maybe what business owners and, and leaders are perhaps struggling with a little bit. And that's definitely something we saw bubbling away probably from about 2017, 2018, massively accelerated by the pandemic. And employees now are asking quite rightly, why should I work for you? And this is why employer brand is is becoming much more important. But in terms of recruitment specifically, and it is a problem, and it's a problem that lots of organisations have experienced over the past probably two years been really tough, probably five years has been starting to feel that tension. And I think what what kind of frustrates me a little bit, but also gives me a bit of, of hope to pass on to business leaders, is from a psychology perspective, recruitment is the easiest thing to get right. Like when we talk about, on, on our podcast, we talk about helping business owners simplify the science of people. And if we're talking about the science of recruitment, that's the easiest bit because we've got so much research for, I think it's about 100 years worth of research now based on on the kind of the evidence-led ways to recruit great talent. So I think whereas there is challenges within the talent market, there are skill shortages, there are growing expectations, there are shifting attitudes towards what work means within people's lives, and there are different variables we need to contend with. But in terms of finding great people, it really is having an evidence-led process. And that starts by understanding the job you're recruiting for, what are the competencies and skills that you need, and, and also within that, how does that job contribute to the mission delivery of your organization? Yep. How does it add value? Is it making money? Is it saving money? Is it driving efficiency? What's the, what's the contribution that role makes? And that helps us understand the competencies and skills and experience we need in a person. Once we've figured out that, we can develop an evidence-led recruitment process, which is predictive of work performance. So it's no... It's no accident that something like psychometrics or interviews are popular recruitment methods. They're popular because from a science science perspective, we know they're predictive of work performance. So if a candidate performs well on a structured interview that is competency-based and assessed objectively, we know that that's going to be predictive of how well they perform on the job. And that can go for all sorts of different methods like psychometrics, personality tests, work sample tests. And the more different methods you do, the more reliable your recruit method is going to be, the more predictive it's going to be. 
um, and the more chance you're going to make a good hire. Because even if we take away the, the skill shortages we're experiencing, a bad hire costs yeah. so much to a business, not yeah. just in terms of recruitment and training costs, but yeah. the morale drain that that has on the organisation. Um, so, yeah, I think that's the, the hope is that recruitment is actually probably the least invested in in terms of planning, but the easiest one to get right and probably the one you'll see the most return on your investment. Let me ask you a, a, a question then on there, feed, feeding back, which is I absolutely understand the um, the science-based, the evidence-based approach. And I think, you know, I'm a big fan of um, values-based interviewing for that basis because, again, I'm a fan of culture and the fact that not that, not that you want everyone to be the same. And I've, I've said on this podcast and I've said before, I made the mistake for too much of my career by surrounding myself with people who I thought were just like me. I thought that was the team mentality mm. when actually I've had my most successful teams when I've actually been proactively diverse in that in that recruitment. We can, maybe that's a, a conversation for later, but I understand the bit that says, you know, okay, so if, if someone like yourself is, so if, if Oblong's going to help somebody do this this process and i love the fact that you call it a map because the road map is obviously part of a map and that ends why we have the map room so i'm probably biased on that one but i understand the thing that says tell me about your business tell me about your people what kind of if we're going to use the word personality traits fits but where i find people then often struggle is if they're in a growing business and you're talking about competencies for a role and particularly in lots of our client base, the agency has been created as a vehicle to build a craft. So we are software developers or we are designers or UX designers or whatever. And then when they've got to recruit, let's just say the thing that lots of clients come to us with, which is I've got to build a sales or a client services function. And then asking that software engineer or that designer to be able to um, understand the core competencies of that role for something that they've they've maybe never done in their career and they've definitely not employed before. I've seen that been again an obstacle. Talk us through your your thoughts on that little bit in that, and what can what can a business owner do that if he can't see that role in his own mind's eye and he can't say. Again, let's just use software development for an example. It's quite easy for a, for a software developer to do a technical test and say, I can tell whether that person can write code. I can tell whether that person is a tester, etc. cetera. Um, and, the, and, the, and we know many of our clients who go through this re, um, recruitment treadmill, particularly with business development, client services, whatever badge you want to put on it, because they're trying to recruit a person that's probably very unlike them and sees the world unlike them. Talk us through where something like that maybe fits on your roadmap or what advice you would give to somebody to say, you know, how would they deal with that? I think the important thing first in, 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 our, in our roadmap culture is, is separated into three different stages, the role, the person, and then employer, employer brand. And I think it's, it's starting by differentiating in your mind, if you can, the difference between the role you need in your business mm. and the person that you would like to have in your business because while personality is a measure that's useful to look at and is important it's not as predictive of work performance as other elements that that can make up a person particularly in terms of whether it be experience or competencies or general mental ability for example so i think the first thing to do is really think about 
rather than worrying about, oh, I'm going to have to recruit something that's completely different to me, is thinking about what do I want this role to do? What do I need it to deliver? What are the KPIs? What's the performance look like? How does it interact with my customers? How does it interact with my team? How do I interact with them as a leader and understand the role? And I think once you do that, you can start to detach the, I guess, the the transactional aspect yep. of employing somebody with the personal aspect of, of employing somebody. And then I think when you, in terms of understanding that role and then translating into a person, there's a really useful technique that we use with clients called repertory grid and this is where you go okay let's imagine that sounds I think... like a new steven spielberg film <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's rep grid for sure which is a bit more punchy isn't it coming to cinema soon uh, but what's useful is you'll sit down with with your entire team because everyone has sales is a great example because we all have examples of of knowing people in sales or business development at some point even if we're being sold to we'll yeah. know somebody Sit down with your team and go, right, let's just think of somebody that we know from our from our history that we think was just a fantastic salesperson in terms of their ability to convert, in terms of their ability to generate leads, the gold standard of just, just absolutely smashed targets month on month. Then let's think about somebody who was okay. They were right. They hit their targets maybe one every three months. They were steady. They were never the superstar, but they were steady. And then let's think about somebody who was just awful. Somebody that either... They might have been successful in their own way, but we found them a bit bullish in their sales approach that we don't want, or actually they just bombed and, and never yeah, sold anything. promised lots and delivered very little. Exactly. Yeah. And once we've got these three people in mind, go, right, let's take person A, the superstar, and person B, the, the middle of the lane. What did they have in common? What traits did they have in common? Was it either in terms of their experience, was it in terms of how they approached things, how they spoke to customers, how they interacted with the rest of the team? the hours they put in just finding those commonalities between the two and then going around basically in a circle okay now let's look at at b middle of the road with c just awful what did they have in common that perhaps yeah. isn't the desirable traits we're looking for and then you can start to build up a picture of the type of competencies that you believe are effective within the context you need them in because sales as well is completely different, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, depending on, on the industry and the context. So then you can start to get a list of, again, of, of competencies, of traits, of, of just characteristics that you believe as a collective would be a good fit for the, the role. And then you can look at the person because then as well, it takes away the personal aspect of, and like you say, a lot of businesses fall into the trap of, oh, I want to recruit people just like me. Yeah. And that and get, that starts things like group think and over consensus. And it really, really dampens down on things like innovation and creativity if we're yeah. all thinking the same. So we all need that diversity. Wearing black shoes in the city of London is one of my things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think, again, it just kind of helps you differentiate. And what it also means as well, I mean, from a, a more serious perspective and from a legal perspective, and this is where I worry for small businesses who don't have an evidence-led recruitment process yeah. they are leaving themselves open Absolutely. in terms of, of equality and diversity yeah. issues and, and and that type of thing so I think it really helps you to differentiate from the role the person um, and then make a more rounded decision when you're then presented with the candidate um, in terms of what you're looking for and it may be you go do you know what I'm not entirely sure I vibe with this person I'm not even yeah. entirely sure I like him but my word they tick every single box we're looking for you know what? What? How do we? How do we navigate this if if we do bring them into our business? So, just to use that phrase, ticking boxes on that. If you were, um, and I totally get this. It's, let's just use the A, B, and C piece. So obviously mm -hmm. the the primary objective, and I've done it, and I'll probably do it again. 
I've recruited C's, yeah, and it's happened. It's been a bad decision. And you say, probably because I like the person or whatever it was, but I got that wrong and it's not been right. Um, and so, therefore, your goal is to get A's and B's. So the question I wanted to ask there and what you said is, in your experience or just in your opinion, are businesses that are consistently recruiting A's more likely to succeed or is it about recruiting the B and developing them into an A? This is a really interesting question. There's a, there's a really interesting psychological phenomenon called the superstar effect. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it. But there was, there was, there's so much research on it. But I think one of the most famous ones was that they did some research around Tiger Woods, you know, the golf player. I do. I know you like a sports analogy, so you I might do. like well this one. Well done, you've listened. <laughs> <laughs> um, they found that when Tiger Woods was playing on the course, every other professional golfer's performance dipped. Yep. And you'd think they'd be like, well, it's time to step up. Tiger Woods is here. But they were so intimidated and, yeah. and overthought, over-concentrated, made bad decisions. Um, so that's called the superstar effect, where having a superstar in play actually pulls down the overall performance of other people. We see it as well with chess players. Um, you know, chess players, like the grandmasters, will make a mistake and other people will play them and will go on to make another mistake because that person couldn't possibly have made a yes. wrong move. Um, so we see that within teams as well, in, in businesses. If you recruit a superstar, we see exactly the same thing that superstar yeah. effect drags the the team down yes and i think again this is where recruiting superstars can work but again it's it, it can work in an environment where you know exactly how that person is going to contribute to that role yeah. and as i said earlier the overall mission delivery of the organization are they on board with the overall vision mm. of the organization and want to work towards that that's where hiring a superstar yeah. is going to work really well but in terms from a risk perspective, and if you don't have either the time or the budget, although you can do a lot of this yourself with the right research, um, to really look at this evidence-led way of recruiting, maybe yeah, recruit bees <laughs> might be might be might be safer from a risk perspective. Yeah, interesting. Very 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 interesting. Um, so you said something there on um, at the outset, really, which I think there's two things really wanted to cover there. One is the looking at the role and how the role faces internally. Because I believe that's where lots of people make this error, specifically in the uh, in the space we cover for the, so the digital agencies. And they're looking specifically for business development and or sales style roles. And their assumption is that that person's role is, we use the phrase customer facing, uh, but I always say to people, but they have to be able to face both ways. So, yes, it's an external customer-facing role and your expectation is them to, you know, represent your agency the best way possible for your clients, et cetera, et cetera. But I've often seen, therefore, there then becomes an internal tension because what they haven't considered is, and whether that person perceives themselves to be the superstar or whatever, that the way in which they then understand how that person integrates with the team specifically when the business is recruiting roles that they haven't had before i find that that's the bit that they miss so i think it was really interesting maybe you can you can come back on that but your point of understanding the role is almost has two faces one is the external role and one is how they integrate with the team is somewhere that i think i've made that mistake and i know lots of people can continue to make the mistake the other point that i wanted just to come back on and, and as I say feel free to to carry on with either of these is you mentioned about the concept of employer brand and I think that's something that again has become more evident 
recently because we can all make ourselves look a certain style on social media. We're no longer, you know, I am of that age where I actually put adverts in the Manchester Evening News to recruit people. That's what it used to be like a long, long time ago. We I know you can't believe it, but that's true. Uh, and, of course, nowadays it's all a very different way of doing things. And there is this, um, when I say move now, most of our clients actually get branding better than, you know, in other sectors because that's what they do, but sometimes don't look at their own brand. And I think very often agencies are very good at creating a brand that, again, they um, interrogate and promote through the prism of the client, then the lens of the client to go, how does that client look at me? You know, how do I make, let's just use SEO, for example, how do I make my business look different to all these other people? And yet, actually, we know that go back to your point of evidence evidence says that those that's those that succeed and those that succeed on a regular basis i should say not so not what overnight wonders those succeed businesses succeed on a regular basis have a steady team and build the right people in and therefore actually having a brand that's a place to want to work and want to aspire to go to is a big thing but i can't help thinking though and look at some of our clients that again it's that our brand is entirely focused on the eyes of our client and not about that. So talk us, if you can, talk us through where you've seen, with obviously without giving names, where you've seen somebody, you know, an employment brand or somebody change their brand to become an employer of choice and how's that, how's that, how, how do you do that and how does it work? I think there's a, there's a couple of things that I'd, and I'd really like to pick up on, on what you mentioned there. I think the first is what you mentioned about kind of the the internal versus the external in terms of how this person functions in the business. And I think that works exactly the same way as you said with clients. I think what's interesting is the organisations that tend to struggle with engagement that might have high attrition rates, are losing people more regularly or find it harder to attract talent, perhaps are suffering with lower productivity or lower performance. That's often down to attention between how the business is presenting itself externally yep. and how the business is, is operating internally. And what we found from research, and particularly with, I think this is particularly important for digital agencies that will tend to have younger people employed yes, within yes. their business. What we've seen with, with the younger millennials and certainly the Gen Zs coming through, incongruence drives us nuts. We can't handle incongruence because we see that as a lack of authenticity, yeah. a lack of integrity. We see that as a, you know, you know, do as I say, not no, yeah, you know, yeah, that, that yeah. kind of thing. And I think that's a, a place to start is if you if you are concerned that there is perhaps this incongruence between your external brand with your customers and your internal brand yeah. as an employer. And really, if you think about your inter, your employer brand, really is your culture, mm. because all you're doing with your with your employer brand is advertising your culture to yeah. the world yeah so i think the first thing is really thinking about do these two things align and how do i do the best i can to make sure that these two these two brands are are the same or at least siblings at least reflect each other and i think the key to that really is employee insights yeah. and it's asking those questions it's uncovering yeah. those areas where there is incongruence and that can be as simple as you know oh we we believe that clients are number one and if they need anything they we want to look after them we want to protect them we want you know to be their 
their biggest champions and then you're saying the same thing to your people and it's like yeah but having that policy means that I need to work 15 hours a day yeah. and have done for the past three years and I've not had much of a pay bump my mental health is then it's, it's this type of thing that there may need to be some some shifts in operationally as well and I think that's the other thing is that all of these things are interconnected which is why I think it's so important now that um, that businesses start to to bring people and culture into the conversation at a board level because it does feed into operations it does does feed into marketing and sales it does feed into um, branding communications it's all one of the same so I think if organizations are struggling with this and wondering where to start my advice would be just try and do even just yourself a little audit just kind of what are my values how am I treating my customers how am I treating my employees and I think the key thing metric to look at if your customer retention is through the roof, like you get a customer and you hold on to that customer for the rest of time, but your turnover rate is really high, yep. then there's probably something not not mm. right there. But the good news is you know how to engage people yes. in a product. Yes. And it's the same process as engaging people in your workplace. Yes. So you know what to do. You know the methodology. We just need to start expanding that into people and culture. Yep. And also I think you said there it's recognising it and maybe celebrating it, as you say. So, you know, your employer brand essentially is you airing your culture, which is great, and 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 understanding that it's there to drive ultimately performance of your business. We had a fascinating guest um, a couple of uh, episodes ago. That was Amanda Walls from Cedarwood. I listened to that episode. And, and yeah, and and Amanda and I was sitting there listening, and and Amanda is very humble about what she's achieved, but she was sitting there talking about a business that doesn't lose clients and doesn't lose people. And, and I had to sort of say to her, I don't know whether you've really taken the time to sit back, but you are doing something really powerful there. I'm not saying it's unique, and she wasn't suggesting it was unique, but they've got the mix right, and that is, that is, that is um, you know, evidently the way to do it, etc. So, okay, um, let's look at, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of time, and I know your uh, roadmap, as you said at the start, has got more than just recruitment. So talk to me about the next stage. So after recruitment, where do we go from recruitment? Yeah, so after we've found the right people, we want to keep the right people. The last thing we want to do is spend time and money recruiting those A's into our business and then only only holding on to them for six months. And when it comes down to it, recruitment and training is often talked about the main cost in a business because they're a bit more tangible. They tend to, you know, we tend to see them on on the balance sheet there somewhere engagement though oh having disengaged employees is one of the biggest challenges you will face as a business and the data is still terrifying it's estimated that 60 percent of employees are disengaged in Mm. the workplace and that's been the case since well 2008 was when the the main lloyd report came out which really kind of dived into this it's a huge amount and i like to use the analogy of because it can it can feel intangible If we imagine that your your business or your agency is, is a rowing boat and you've got eight people in your rowing boat, yeah. if you've got, let's say, 10, make the maths easier yeah. for me, Stuart. Yeah. If we've got 10 people in that rowing boat and 60% are disengaged, yeah. we've got six people in that boat that aren't even rowing. Yeah. Yeah. But even worse, it's also estimated that 20% of employees are actively disengaged. Yes. So they are sabotaging yes. what yes. you're doing as a business. Yes. So in that boat of 10 people, you've got four people who are rowing as hard as they can to yeah. push the business forward. You've got four people who are doing nothing at all yeah. and two people that are rowing in the other Keep direction. Yeah. Yeah. And the boat just doesn't, doesn't move anywhere. And I think this is where we see issues when it comes to people and culture. 
with people experiencing challenges to, to growth is disengagement. And again, the key metrics to look out for on that is a high turnover rate, yep. a high absenteeism rate if you've got people going off sick, yep. arguably challenges in, in, in recruitment if you've not got that employer brand that's feeding in mm. or we've got this disconnect between employer branding yes. and internal culture. So when it comes to employee engagement, it can be that hidden cost, but it costs businesses mm. in the UK billions yes. of pounds every year because disengagement means lower productivity lower performance lower motivation less discretionary effort so people aren't working as hard Mm. that's what quiet quitting essentially is it's employee disengagement it's a fancy word at the time but that's what quiet quitting is so i think if you're if you're going to invest if you've got a business of well, any number of employees, but certainly if you're kind of tipping into that magic number of kind yeah. of 12, 13 people, this has to be something that is on your agenda. And that again comes down to employee yeah. insights. How are people thinking and feeling about the business that they work in? Mm. Because that results in the behaviors that we want to see, both you know positive behaviors. Mm. It'll also show potentially some negative behaviors. Yeah. And that, from a commercial perspective, we know is also linked to things like higher revenue, higher profitability, mm. higher profitability, more happy customers, faster growth, faster change in terms of transformation, mm. um, higher speed to market or quicker speed to market in terms of product innovation. That's from a commercial perspective. From an individual perspective, we also know that engaged employees experience like four or five times higher levels of well-being. Yeah. Um, you know, and that is, is so important, and particularly, again, with the conversations that are being had now about the burnout epidemic that we're seeing around the world, but especially in the UK. So, again, that's something that organisations are, or employees, especially prospective employees as well, are going to want to be asking about. And I think what's really interesting when it comes to engagement this is a passion area of mine. You can probably <laughs> I guess, tell, Stuart. I can see. But I, think I love it. I love, I love passion because it matters. It really does matter because these are people's lives, you yeah. know. It, we, we spend so much time yeah. work. It's part of who we are. And I think what's really interesting with the research that is currently coming out on engagement, particularly the business case for it, is that if we can spend the time to improve engagement, improve employee well-being. Not only do we see the commercial benefits and we see the individual benefits, that's also going to feed directly into our employer brand. Yes. Because this is what candidates want. How do you invest in employee well-being? How yes. do you invest in burnout prevention? Um, and I think once you add on to that as well, we've got like the ESGs that are becoming much more talked about and employee engagement fits really nicely into the social aspect yep. of ESGs. If you're looking to sell your business, one, investors are going to want to know this this data and this metric as part of their due diligence. And two, there is talk of the government actually making mm. this mandatory for organisations to make this data publicly yes. available. Yes. So there's so much to employee engagement that is worth doing and you'll see so much benefits as a business, as an individual, as a leader as well, a business leader, because you'll have much less fires to put out if you've got engaged people. Um but from a from a commercial and a business perspective, a future perspective, if you want to grow and exit your business, if that is your intention and you're not doing something around employee engagement, oh please do because it's just going to be so much harder when you find that find that investor. It's really interesting that you you've said that because uh, I've been involved in a couple of due diligence processes in the last ten months, and normally you'll get you know 80 percent of the questions you're going to see there's a standard template you can get whether it's the legal or the financial and lots of those things don't change the one thing that i have seen 
coming on that agenda is what you've just said. So you'll get the normal things about, you know, what's your client retention, what's your client concentration, what what drops in and drops out, how sticky these revenues, to use a phrase that lots of people will use in this space. Um, but I'm seeing more and more now asking about that. What's the longest tenure of employment? What's the average? Um, what's the average shelf life of X staff? Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly in some of the spaces where there is, if we use developers recently, there, there's been a, you know, ironically, I joke being sat in in, in Media City here, and there was, um, you know, the BBC started some of it, and then you saw another, you know, half of that team then were taken to uh, rent a rental car, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and so there is there is a, I think there's an understanding now that. And maybe you've mentioned the millennials and the and the Gen Zs, and maybe there is that thing now that says, you know, this is not a job for life. This is not. A, and I know there's evidence that says, you know, two if you get two three years, that's that's right. And I think people are prepared to move on. But that's definitely a metric now that is coming up in due diligence, as you've pointed out there that wasn't there before. I also want to say two things on a very personal level. One is, for me, it took me too long to realise that fulfilment was the number one driver for me. So I did that very, you know, 1980 salesperson, very materialistic, watch your car, watch your, all those kind of things. And I've always said, yes, having children changed it. But I learned, you know, when I sold my first business, I have, I've said on this podcast before, you know, I spent nine months miserable. And I was miserable because I just wasn't, and I didn't know why. I had the ticks in the boxes, um, but I just and I realised what it was is those those results did not give me fulfilment. I chased ticks in boxes. I chased what I thought would make me happy, but I realised it wasn't. So now, for myself and everything I choose to do, and for every client I work with, as either as a non-exec or as a, an advisor through Map, I will say to them that fulfilment is the thing that's going to drive you, your business, and your team. And again. You, I think you used to, you use the phrase "quiet quitter." Mm-hmm. So I, I used to use the phrase "quit and stay," but it's exactly the same thing. Which is too often we look at, you know, there there will be as I said before, we can ask our clients, you know, the number, one, and they'll put recruitment on the on the list. They won't put retention on the list, or very few will. They'll now use recruitment and retention as a phrase, mm-hmm. but instead of understanding that actually. Is the recruitment because you're growing? Is the recruitment because you've got a churn? Is the recruitment because it's changing? But actually, as you say, if you go back to your point before about culture, and I think you used a phrase which said it's about the behaviour that gets the worst, the most worst behaviour gets tolerated. It's a little bit like that, isn't it, with the team mechanics? Which is okay if you're if you're um, if you're going to accept the quiet quitters and that level, and and let's just use a number: fifty percent engagement is okay. Then don't be surprised that that's what you're only ever going to get rather than sitting there and saying, well, actually, I'm spending so much time worrying about my next hire and not the people mm-hmm. we've got. And I'll also, again, for the record, I think it's worth worth saying this because when Paul and I started this podcast, we said we always wanted to bring people in that had expertise. I saw an amazing thing I actually read this morning that said uh, too many business owners get conflicting advice from those people who've never done it, never owned a business, never been a um, you know been in that space. So we always talk about, wanting subject matter experts and business owners um, in, in, in the map room with us, is that we went through that exercise and, you know, Paul was addressing the fact that 
you know, Matt, Matt Paul, Paul obviously is a lot younger than I am. Most people are these days. Yeah. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, Paul had a young business and it was that how do you keep people? How do you keep people going? And, you know, we worked with you and, and we looked at that piece of the values and we said, you know, there is clearly a mismatch in our values. It's not that our choice of our values is wrong. But there is a reason why they are not being that is not demonstrable behaviour we're seeing every day in our staff, and more importantly, our clients are seeing with us. So we went through a series of I call them staff questionnaires. You might call them something different in, in technically, um, but that helped us look at that and say, okay, how does if if this is your value, how is that represented by your colleague? How does your client see that? And it helped us. And again, I think it's important for the record to explain that it helped us rewrite our values and then had a significant impact in our business. So I think, mm. you know, I can sit here today as the evidence of everything you're saying does does work, um, which I think is important. Yeah, the thing I'd, I'd just add to that, Stuart, I think if, if business leaders are, are listening in and thinking about investing in this, or might, you might already use things like Office Vibe, is very popular as an employee insights tool. Um, I think my my only kind of advice would be whoever you engage, and I'd like it to be me, of course I would, but whoever you engage, ask the question of, of, of what model of engagement they use that sits behind the questionnaire. Because it can sound simple. Or we'll just put some questions into SurveyMonkey and yeah, send it out and yeah. see how people feel. And you know what? It's, it, it's not a bad start. But the, the key and the psychology and the science behind this is the model engagement that we use is predictive. So what that means is we know if you score a certain, we call it foundations of culture. Yep. A certain score on a foundation of cultures, like relationships, for example, how people are interacting within within the organisation. We know if you score high there, then we should see higher scores on certain types of attitudes and behaviours. And we'll then see that translate into performance. So we also know then if you score low on, on one of the foundations of culture, we're also going to be able to connect that to mm. the undesirable attitudes and behaviours that we're seeing and perhaps the lower levels of performance that we're seeing in the business too. So we know that if we put in an intervention, we make a tweak, whether it's we're looking at the values and talking about the behaviours of that, whether it's investing more in employee well-being, whatever the in- intervention is, we can then say, okay, well, if, we, if we're investing in this intervention to improve this area of our culture, then in six, 12 months' time, we should see that area increase in score. We should see the correlating behaviours and attitudes increase in score. And we should see the related organisational performance outcome increase as well. And that is how we make sure that this is one science-led, but too good for business. Yeah. Because, you know, it would be nice if we could all create wonderful workplaces where everyone's happy and fulfilled. But the reality is businesses also need to make money. So we need to connect the two things. So I think that's the the key. And, and also, I think as well, there is a danger with well-being being talked about a lot more, more providers coming onto the scene. If it isn't evidence-led, we could be spending money on interventions mm. that don't make an impact on our employees mm. and don't make an impact on our business. Or oh, they're just a trend. It's just a fad. Yeah, yeah. they're just a fad. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So the cool thing about having an evidence-led model of engagement sitting behind your employee insights tool that you do every every six, 12 months, we know that we can also use it as a way of measuring the return on investment for any other investments mm. we've made in terms of people and culture. So this is where it, it takes the fluff out of it. It takes the yep. nice to have out of it. This is a fundamental pillar of making sure we have a successful business for our people and for our bank account that probably moves us on a little bit to the next part of of, say management so 
you've said you've said stuff there that I would recognise as, and most listeners would recognise as. These are tasks and processes I go through specifically when I'm recruiting, and we want that team to stick. We don't want to be looking to replace that person in the next six months, twelve months, whatever. So the um, retention. I think the fact that people talk about recruitment and retention in one sentence rather than separate skill sets, separate activities, I think is one thing. And then you mentioned there about, you know, when when you maybe as part of a management process, you're reviewing it and you just mentioned there, say, every six or 12 months. What's your view on that? And is there any evidence that says, you know, those companies who do this on an annual basis achieve better results or where does that fit in terms of how when you think you've recruited your team the risk is to go weren't we brilliant recruiting that team two years ago aren't we amazing and then wonder why it starts to fit you know fizzle out yeah and I think that's that's the the joy and the curse of being an entrepreneur isn't it that you know what worked what got us there then two years ago ain't gonna get us there now the world is changing it accelerates so quickly now so I think yeah it's I think in terms of recruitment, it's a constant it's a constant process. If you've recruited the same role, role 12 months ago, you probably need to have a look and just make sure that's still the role you want within your business and it's still the, the type of person you're looking for and it's still going to contribute to your business in the same way because it moves on so quickly. Similarly with employee engagement, you don't want to you don't want to overag it because there is something called um, survey fatigue. Yeah, if you know employees are constantly getting asked questions, then they're going to start to you know not answer as, as honestly or with um, with as much intent behind it. So I think for me, the in terms of employee insights, I say every twelve months for a deep dive, it's fantastic. Yeah. Every six months for just a little pulse survey, particularly if you want to measure your return on investment. If you've invested something in terms of people and culture, you want to see that that's yeah. that's working. Um, but I think this is where the third element comes in, which is our third tier, which is management. And it's more these informal, impromptu conversations that happen all the time. And I think recruitment is obviously important because you need people and good people in your business. Engagement is obviously important because you want to keep your great people in your business. It costs a lot of money when you lose them. But if there is just one thing to get right as a business owner, oh man, it's having great line managers. All the evidence shows is that you know, it's that it's that cliche saying, isn't it? You know, people don't leave, people leave bad bosses, not yes. bad companies yes. or bad yeah. jobs. Yeah. And all the data shows that that is the case in terms of retention, in terms of well-being, in terms of performance. It all comes down to the manager. They have the biggest impact. I think, particularly as an entrepreneur, you know, if you've spent so much time and love and effort and sweat and tears and sacrifice to build up this business. You then, your management team is the person you are entrusting to keep this going, to protect this thing that you have built. It's like it's like leaving, you know, a babysitter with your kids for the first time. You're gonna do some, you're gonna do some research and figure out who this person is. And it's the same with same with line managers. You know, great great training of line managers, um, in terms of coaching of line managers can be really effective. Um, but I think it really does come down to managers create psychological safety, which means people will be honest and will, will say when there's a yes. problem, they will feel comfortable to innovate and ideate and create. Um, but yeah, good managers are, oh, good managers are such, a, such a, a, a more difficult thing to get right because typically what we see, and particularly in small businesses, is people in management roles are the people who have been in the technical roles who have been there the longest yes. or now the most senior, so yeah. you might as well have a team yeah. as well. And we can sometimes forget that the competencies of people, management and leadership is completely different from a, a technical role. Yes. 
So we need to make sure we're doing right by the people that we're promoting into these roles, that they are supported and they have the training and development that they need to succeed in this role. But also then for the, you know, the, the responsibility we have to our other employees and the impact it's going to have on their day-to-day working lives, our clients, um, and, our, and our business performance overall. And I think if there's one thing to invest in, if you just want a little, a little nugget of something, what can I look at? Because, you know, line management training, there's a million things yeah. out there. My advice would be to look at some kind of some kind of training around emotional intelligence or listening or coaching, something that is really transferable skills rather than how to manage a person. Yes. Um, that really just creates this sense of compassion and empathy and managing relationships. And that will be applied to so many other aspects mm. of your business too. But but look at, look at that because I think as well, the research shows emotional intelligence is one of the most impactful skills that leaders and managers can develop um, to engage people, um, to, to motivate people. And it's also something that it makes me smile. We do we do some training with with managers on on these types of things, emotional intelligence and coaching. And often what the feedback that we can get or we'll hear is, oh, you know, I can get my team are happier, but also my wife is loving me right now because I'm actually <laughs> listening to her for once. Or, you know, so it, it really is such a, a positive thing. Invest in your emotional intelligence, invest in your listening skills. So few people can listen well. A, f- a couple of things there. Um, I think the challenge for me is... You said there the, and I see it. So, if, and again, just for absolute transparency, when I work on um, with a client and I'm working as a non-exec, I will say to them, if you can't show me your, your values, don't bother engaging me because I'm not. I'm not interested in wasting your time on mine. Um, but also, when I sit there and I say, talk to me about how you are going to develop a management team, because. If they're going to scale the business, they can't keep spinning all the plates. Also, I've I've been there, and you will have seen it, the fact that what the owner gets told is not the reality. So they, they get a different view. How are you going to invest in that management team? But so many times we hit this barrier of, but, you know, and it, ultimately it comes down to trust, but they don't, they try not to say it as that because it sounds judgmental. But they really struggle with, you used the phrase there, it's like the babysitter the first time. They struggle with that, and, and and I can't leave. And then if they go to the movies, they'll be sat there looking at the watch, and they'll be saying, I wonder how you know little Johnny's getting on. And they, they, the, the ability to sit back and trust somebody else mm. with what you've built is really difficult. And I think that that comes from, um, uh, I know I told you about this previously, so my son is currently finishing his business psychology degree. And his uh, questionnaire is about empathy and empathetic leaders. And I found this fascinating because I am the first to say I am not the most empathetic person. So as a salesperson, you taught empathy because that but as part of a sales uh, skill, shall we say. And I always say that, you know, I said it last last month, my biggest weakness is I see the world through my eyes. And I think that. Um, so my son's exact dissertation is corporate psychopathy, which I have, a, I have a real interest in, and, and some people accuse me of that. But it's that thing that says very often the entrepreneur makeup, and this may be changing, but the entrepreneur makeup and the definition of the risk taker, if we take entrepreneurship to its sort of furthest angle, is the person who, in the main, is less empathetic because if they could see the world like everyone else, they wouldn't do the things they did. And so that's where... I see this battle that I've gone through. It's taken me, you know, 50 plus years to get there to say, no, it's okay to let that person make mistakes. I'd have been that person that said, 
you know, watching over their shoulder. And when they made a mistake, pulling them up on it, not saying that's brilliant, you've made that mistake, that's a learning opportunity. So how does that, and again, I know we don't want to necessarily use, you know, the psychometrics of the entrepreneur mm. are probably more on that less empathetic side Absolutely. in some cases. But so how does that then match with being comfortable enough to trust that, you know, because the, the best entrepreneurs, um, I saw a fascinating interview with Richard um, Branson at the weekend with um, the, uh, I think his name is Azul from BBC anyway, um, and he was saying that this is where I knew I, I couldn't do these things and with his dyslexia. And this is why I surrounded myself with people that were better than me in all these areas. Now, that's a certainly emotional intelligence, to use your phrase, for that person. But lots of entrepreneurs I know, either genuinely their ego gets in the way mm-hmm. or they just can't see it. They just and they struggle to let go. Yeah. And, that, and that's why they don't scale the businesses. 100 percent. And I think what's. I think if you're if you're an entrepreneur you're listening, going, oh my god, that's me. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, it's you mm-hmm. and many other entrepreneurs. The the psychology of entrepreneurs is so fascinating from a personality perspective. There is there's lots of research done by an organisation called Hogan Assessments, which is just an incredible personality um, publisher, and they've found that the personality of entrepreneurs, the personality profile of entrepreneurs, is very very similar, almost to the point where you can't tell a difference with organised criminals. Well. Because it comes down to risk taking, <laughs> it comes down to opportunity, to innovation, to creativity, yeah. and and it's the only difference is the context. You know, you're taking risks in a, in a legal context, or you're taking risks in an illegal context, and that just comes down to the society you're in and what the rules are. Um, so it is really interesting. So so yes, it, it is challenging for entrepreneurs um, that that may score a bit lower on things like empathy um, to understand this. And I think there's 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 three things that you can do. Because I think if you, and I, I was listening to your episode, your episode as well with Daniel Priestley, which I was brilliant, by the way. Um, but I think is what he says. No, oh, Daniel, well, not he? me, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're both great, but Daniel was <laughs> exceptional. Um, but he said something like, didn't he, you know, something like, you know, assume you're not six foot tall, assume Absolutely. you're not going to win Wimbledon. I think it's the same thing. If you're an entrepreneur, assume that you're not going to be a great leader, broke a people my, leader. Broke my heart, Leanne. He looked, took one look at me and said, <laughs> you're never going to be a Wimbledon, Wimbledon champion. I never, I never slept that night. It's rude, it's rude. But, he, he, I mean, he's probably not wrong, Stuart. He's, but... he's not wrong. <laughs> but I think it's the same if you're yeah. an entrepreneur, is, is accepting that, you know, the skills that I that yeah. I needed to build my business to the point it is, is mm. probably going to require a different skill set to scale mm. it further. Absolutely. And I think this is where we see, you know, people like, you know, Steve Jobs. Without Steve Jobs, mm. Apple wouldn't have got to the point it, it did. Without Steve Wozniak probably wouldn't be where it is now you need that transition Mm. once your business gets to a certain point where you're you know the the innovation and disruption and and constant Mm. change isn't needed as much anymore what we need is stability and efficiency and great people leadership and i think as an entrepreneur it's recognizing the time for that that transition Um, and also then making sure that you as you said you know it's about being fulfilled an entrepreneur who enjoys this ideation and innovation is probably going to be miserable in what is essentially the role of a chief operating officer. Absolutely. So, you know, it's recognised well for yourself and your own fulfilment. Mm. It's probably time to move on and transition out. 
And I think in terms of of recognizing that, and you, you mentioned trust, which is a, a big a big word that's being used at the moment in terms of of culture. And I think this is where again it's important to I guess two things. If you if you're starting to recognize you're at that tension point as a as a business leader, one make sure you've got your employee insights, your engagement insights running, because that's going to measure a good employee engagement mm. survey is going to tell you how well your managers are operating mm. within your business and how and, satisfied your people are. And may flag that tension because if exactly. like me and you only see the world through your eyes, you might not see it for yourself. Exactly. And so it actually is flagging it and, and being being prepared to listen, as you said earlier, that makes the difference. Absolutely. So you've got that data to, you know, to, to, yeah. to look at if you can't see it for yourself. I think secondly, and one thing that, that I think is so important for any leader, for themselves as well as their team, is engage a coach. Um, and it can be that you engage a coach and you, you work with them every week forever and always. It could be that you have a coach for six months and never yep. again. But that person to help you reflect on your own practice. Like you said, I couldn't I couldn't see it. We can we can go through processes that is gonna change the you know, the how our brain is, is wired and connected to to just be more aware. It might not it probably won't come as easily. Yes. But we'll be aware that oh I might need to reflect on on what went mm. down in this situation perhaps I missed something here mm. and this is where coaching is such a powerful intervention for any leader and particularly an entrepreneurial leader and I think finally and it's one thing that you know she said that that trusting and letting go if you've got these managers in place and you feel like I'm not getting an entirely different story or I don't know how it is actually on on the front line one of my the greatest leader I ever had would always every quarter sit down with members of the team, just to check in, see how they're doing, not a, not a performance pros or anything like that, just a conversation. And it was just things like that, that just, you just get snippets. And again, just slight little snippets of incongruence. It doesn't quite fit with what I'm being told. And then I'm looking at my employee insights data as well. And that doesn't quite fit just to get yourself a bigger picture. And I think anyone who is an entrepreneur is curious and they want the full picture. They want all the information because they want to figure out a way to make it better. So I think it's, it's, it's developing yourself as a leader. It's making sure you've got the insights. It's investing in your managers, um, but really just tapping into that curiosity. You know, it might not be the exact skills that, that you know, entrepreneurial skills that will get you to being, you know, a 500 plus people organization, but it's going to be those skills that will help you still innovate and, and just improve things within your, your management team. So tap into your curiosity. Mm, interesting. Uh, it's very often we, we'll talk to somebody as, as the business owner and they'll say, you know, I'm not enjoying it anymore because when I used to do this and now I'm, I'm that horrible phrase, you know, I'm, I'm stuck in the day to day, I'm doing this. And it is that bit about, well, you've allowed that to happen because when you were in startup phrase or growth mode and you were just too busy looking at everything and you've allowed yourself because you're not, you know, you're not trusting somebody else to... Um, sat to do the last interview. You're not trusting somebody else to do the contracts for employment or whatever. So I think that's I think that's a big big piece. You've said something there that I'm I'm, I'm conscious of time and I wanted to to bring on because this is where probably the dilemma comes in for uh, somebody like Map or or others. So we will we will hound some clients about their financial measurements and we will say. You know, one of the key KPIs is, for example, what's your percentage of, first of all, billable hours? So, you know, sometimes we'll say, you know, you've had this team, you're growing this team and you've gone from, let's just say you've gone from 
95% chargeable roles and you've now recruited a management team in place and you've now got, suddenly you've only got 60% chargeable roles, that's a problem. And the risk is the accountant makes it potentially look negative for that reason. There's also the piece that then talks about you know, the percentage of billable hours. And if you are using your phrase, conducting interventions. And I work with lots of clients who will say, you know, we only ever want to uh, our developers to bill 80% of the time because we want them to spend whatever it is, the fourth Friday doing a hack order. And then, of course, that gets pushed out the way because we've got to deliver this job, we've got to do this. So how do you get if if i'm going to if i'm going to put the negative side from the accountants in the room here because i do i do think that this you know our our philosophy for the, for the map room is is um honesty is that how do you get the the accountant or the cfo or how do you get your board to say yes to this importance about people and culture because those interventions cost time and cost money and I absolutely understand and accept that not doing a cost money, but how do you get people to realise that, I'm going to use a phrase stitch in time because I can't think of a better way of putting it across. How do you get them to realise that that money spent now doing that is going to sow these things over here? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's definitely something that is being talked about much more. How do we, how do we prove the business case for investing mm. in people and culture? There's actually some really interesting research that's just been done. It's just been launched, actually. It was launched at the Watercooler event uh, a couple of weeks ago by um, Business in the Community and Mackenzie Health. And it was developed by CFOs for CFOs mm. with exactly this intent. How do we prove the business case for, for people and culture and for well-being? Yeah. What they found is that organisations that were suffering from poor employee well-being or poor employee health in general in terms of the cost of absenteeism, presenteeism, or attrition, it costs about £5,000 per year per employee. Once you add in the positive impacts of having positive well-being, high levels of retention, high levels of productivity, that went up to £7,000 per employee per year. And this was done with lots of data run by CFRs, you know, as data-driven it could be. So already, even if you've only got an organisation of 10 people, mm. this could cost you £70,000 per year in lost productivity. Yeah. So I think it's the case of, of one, understanding the data. Two, I think it's understanding that there are other metrics to consider. We need to create a holistic picture of the data. If we're just looking at bottom line, or, or you know, then that could be that can be harder to understand where the impact is. But if we're looking at metrics like retention, like time to fill a role, like yeah. the number of active vacancies within our organization at any one time, like the number of people who are off sick and how often, like the revenue generated per head, then all the, you know all the other metrics that yeah. we have as well. If we combine that into a holistic picture, if if all those metrics are looking great and looking cool, then yeah, there isn't a business case to invest mm. in people and culture because what we're doing seems to be working. There's probably an argument to try and figure out what that is if you're yeah. not sure, but you know what it is is working. If you as a CFO, and I guess this is is the analogy, you know, if you. I guess we kind of see that, you know, an accountant, an accountant is, is I guess, more the HR as a, you know, having a, a head of people and culture is to have a CFO. Like, yeah, there's a tactical yes, side of it yes, to do yes, the transactional yes. stuff. But we know and Matt yeah, knows yeah. the value from having an outsourced finance function yeah. comes from the strategic work that is done. Yeah. Where do we invest? Where yeah. do we play? Where yeah. can we save? Where can we make efficiencies? And it's the same with investing in 
people and culture. Yes, I'm sure you have HR and someone to help with your mm. contracts. But there comes a point in your business where you need somebody to focus mm. on the strategic side of things. So I think that's 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 the other thing to, to think about. And I guess it is is the intention behind it. Why do you want to invest in as a business leader? Mm. Why do you want to invest in this? Is it because you've heard, like you say, it's a fad, it's nice to do, or it'll feed nice into our employer brand if we say we've got all these wellbeing benefits? Or is it actually that we've done this these employee statistics, these um, surveys, and we're seeing that people aren't happy, they don't like their managers, productivity is low, mm-hmm. our customers are complaining, we've got people leaving, I've got 12 vacancies that I can't fill, then I think it would be naive of any CFO yeah. to, to deny that level of investment. And when it comes to the board, this is the number one thing that is so important as a business owner. If you don't have the buying of your board, there's no point in doing anything at mm. all. Because unless you have the buy-in at the most seniorest of levels, making any kind of systemic change within your culture is going to be impossible. So that is really the, the place to start to get to get board buy-in. And I think finally, if all of those things still can't convince your CFO or your board, then I would my advice would be find a new F, new CFO on board. <laughs> yeah. Because when it comes, as we've they said, might, when it they comes They might be the person rowing backwards in that boat. Exactly. <laughs> are they working against you? Because again... Yeah. You know, the generational differences that we're seeing, these are things that employees are looking Mm. for now. This is part of how we attract great talent. Mm. Um, So, yeah, start with the data, and then if that doesn't work, then find a new CFO. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Okay. So, obviously, I I said before, you know, we we know you from the work you've done with us, and and to use your phrase, the interventions that, that we've seen benefits in our business. So, obviously... Talk us through a little bit about your, so you also, as well as doing Oblong as the business, you do the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast. Talk a little bit about that. So obviously, you know, if anybody's out there listening and any clients want to reach you directly, brilliant, do that and say how. Or if they want to understand a little bit more about your culture and your um, philosophy, if that's the right phrase, tell us a little bit about how they can dip in and find out. How do they find your podcast? The podcast is Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture. We're part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Uh, you'll find us in any podcast platform, whichever one you listen to, on YouTube as well, um, or on the, the HubSpot Network website. Um, we talk about simplifying the science of people, and it came from an idea that working with people like like you and, and Paul at MAP and Amanda as well, um, and other clients as well, is, is it's often there is a... I think it's it's... There aren't often entrepreneurs that come from a place of understanding people and culture or being mm. part of their their world. Usually say it's a technical thing, whether it be marketing or finance, that they've yeah. built an agency around and then it's grown really successfully and they've got to the point where they're like, I'm starting to experience some tension now with people and culture or I want to grow even more, how do I do that? And I think there is there are very few organisations out there that are affordable for smaller businesses to, to engage. And I also think as well, there is an element of there is lots of this kind of stuff, the the best, the, the kind of lower level best practice stuff you can probably do yourself internally. So Truth and Lies was really kind of created from this stance of how can we bring kind of these gold stand, standard practices in people and culture to a wider audience of people that they can really start to make a difference within their business because one it's great for the the entrepreneurs because they'll get to scale their business more easily and more profitably but also it means that their employees and their workforces are going to enjoy enjoy much more fulfilling work much higher levels of well-being um and and yeah just in general experience experience 
a happier life. So for us, it was about bringing these best practices. And, and it's kind of, we still do that. If you listen to the early episodes, we'll hear a lot of what we talked about today. What we kind of talked about more recently is actually people's journeys. So we had Oliver Yonchev on the show yeah. last week from Flight Story, the business he founded with Stephen Bartlett, talking very interestingly about his intention of building culture from day one of startup. Um, we've talked about things like well-being, men's mental health, burnout. Uh, we've talked about leadership. Um, we've talked about personality. We've talked about how not to be a psychopath as a business leader. We've talked about so many different things. And I think the... The thing that we would really like and I'd really like to happen is just for this to be part of the conversation, a conscious part of a business leader's day-to-day life, mm. just as finances or marketing that's is or sales the, that's is. That's the key. That's absolutely yeah, the key. Yeah. Exactly. So I think it's just starting to, to bring that conversation to mm. to more people. Um, so yeah, check it out. I hope I hope you, you enjoy it. Um, and yeah, we're always looking for ideas for for topics to cover so if you do have any of those or if there's anything that that we can help you with through oblong um then get in touch with me directly my email is leanne at oblonghq.com excellent listen i think we are probably where we need to be um it's it's i always say with these things uh if i'm not looking at the clock and it's gone but it's been a fantastic conversation <laughs> and it has been a it has been a fantastic and enthralling conversation and i do hope that We've covered areas that I, I know they resonate with lots of clients because there are lots of those conversations have gone on. So as always, we hope that, as I said at the outset, that the ideas and the actions, and I'm going to now use the word interventions, I'll pinch that from you. So the interventions, and we can give you some interventions that you can put into your business that will hopefully drive better outcomes for you and, as we said at the top of the show, your team. So really all that remains for me to do is to say thank you so much to Leanne for spending her time with us. Thank you for everybody who's listening because we know you're making the investment in your time and we hope that The Map Room helps you build a better business. Thanks and see you again soon. The Map Room has been brought to you by Map, the outsourced finance function for digital agencies. Subscribe via your usual podcast app to never miss an episode.